Welcome, everybody, to episode number 30 of the Light Shed podcast on Friday the 13th. Although it hasn't been a very ominous week, I'm Brandon Ross, along with Richard Greenfield and Walter Pisick. Hello, fellas, on Vaccine Week. I think the song is finally starting to grow on me now that this is our third take. <laughs> In their first two takes, I called it garbage, but now I'm actually starting to, starting to catch on. Yeah. Not That's, terrible. By the way, for those who are listening at home, and hopefully we don't get like um, a takedown notice <laughs> for, for this, uh, for copyright violation, but that was Get Innocuous LCD Sound System. And I don't know, I chose it this week because... That line there, you can normalize, makes me want to feel alive. Just reminds me of getting inoculated and the vaccine. And I guess that's probably where we should kick it off. Walter, you want to read CNBC? Yeah, well, CNBC. This what Rich is showing for our podcast listeners is a tweet by CNBC um, talking about Pfizer's um, and this trial data showing that a vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing infection. As many of our listeners know, this rallied the markets for at least a day and certainly got some optimism. Um, markets rallying today. And today. I mean, there was Actually, a pretty, pretty, pretty broad base today um, for, the, for the first time this week. Um, but the stay-at-home stocks are definitely outperforming. We see Live Nations up five and a half percent. JetBlue's up five and a half percent. So, of course, at the same time, cases are spiking, as we know. Even I know. What's, what's a little irritating to me sometimes I see on Twitter someone like, "Now do deaths." I'm like, "Okay, I'll do deaths for you." Since our last podcast, deaths there were 7,400 people Americans that died. Yeah. So there's your deaths for those of you that are tweeting. Now do deaths. <laughs> There's your fucking deaths. Oh, I think what people are trying to say is that the mortality rate has improved significantly from COVID. But when the gross amount of cases go like, are, are spiking so much, the bottom line is you're having, I don't know, upwards of a thousand people dying every day. Um, Seven thousand, eight thousand. So 9, we still have a we still have a. Is not big, good. No, we yeah. still have a, a huge problem on our hands. Hopefully, the Pfizer vaccine and and other vaccines to come are are going to normalize our our lives again. But um, let's hope so. Uh, all the companies that we cover are are st- and all of us are are still dealing with this problem and trying to plan for the now and what the post-COVID world looks like now that there actually may be a light at the end of the tunnel. Speaking of post-COVID, though, there was this article, Brandon, that I that both of us saw earlier this week from Billboard saying that Ticketmaster plans to check your vaccine status for concerts, which sort of reminds me, assuming it's true, and you can chime, mm-hmm. chime in in a second, yeah. but it reminds me of what was going on in Hong Kong when Hong Kong, or it was, I think it was Hong Kong or Shanghai Disney, I forget which one, where you had to show a QR code showing that you didn't have COVID to get into the theme park. I think you actually do the same thing for the, the tube or their underground system as well. Uh, do you think this happens for concerts? Um, well, first of all, let, let me start off by saying, if it is gonna happen for concerts, Ticketmaster is going to have absolutely nothing to do to do with it uh, from the from the decision side. What Ticketmaster and I believe they probably are trying to add this technology into 
the Ticketmaster app as a tool for venues and promoters who are their clients to use in case they want to have that requirement um, to enter a concert. So to the extent that you know, Ticketmaster is, is a tool provider um, to its customers, I think that's you know probably a pretty smart technology to have. Whether or not it happens or not is going to come down to, first of all, whether local governments um, mandate that in order to have gatherings, you're going to need COVID tests or vaccine and whether the promoters want to do it. Personally, you know, Man, I love going to shows more, more than anyone. I would like to get back to that in a, in a safe manner. So I'm, I'm hoping that this does happen. There's been pushback well, everywhere though. And it's not just like the kind of, Fox News, Newsmax, Parlor crew, um, who seems to be pushing back. And some of my um, sort of like music list serves a lot of pretty liberal people seem upset about the idea of providing data. Uh, where the test come about, from? About their health, health where, from where, where are the tests coming from? Because you know when we've had a minor outbreaks in our towns, people are scrambling to get tests. There's like multiple hour waits, so they're going to mandate tests. And where are they coming from? Because it seems like they still haven't solved supplying right, reliable right, right, tests. Right now, it seems like they're uh, nine months in. There, there might be a bit of a. Sh- I don't know if there's a shortage of tests, but there's such crushing demand that the wait times are are really really long right now. Well, that's why this tweet was interesting, Brandon. We just saw this earlier today that it says. This is from Ramona Shelburne saying for eight months, Warriors owner Joe Lacob has worked on a secret project dubbed Operation Dub Nation to safely return fans amidst the pandemic. The team has spent $30 million to test 10,000 on game days with a rapid test that's, at least in this article, says 99% accurate. Um, So they have tests. Uh, I guess it's just a matter of whether you have enough money, you can get tests. Um, Sure. I, I, I for here you're talking about again it's the it's the entity that's putting on the event that's requiring the tests and looks like they're paying for it <laughs> to get to get fans back in the arena and i am sure especially in that city that they will have no problem uh filling the arena if if they if they give the rapid test people in westchester county are willing to spend on tests as well rich and there seems still seems to be a, a challenge in sourcing the tests there so i'm not sure it's it's we can just say it's a dollars and cents thing alone where are the tests is there, walt is there actually a shortage of tests or is it i don't just, know if there's a shortage i just know that it's just the real life experience insane. yeah there's multiple hours waits you know there's there's obviously reliability on some of these rapid tests is not good. Um, and the other ones are taking time to get processed. So, right. Two, two so, days, so 48 so hours. So you have some now kid getting, six day turnaround. Right. So you have a t- kid waiting for five days and is he, if there's not symptomatic, is he supposed to stay out of school or not stay out of school? And if he's in school and waiting five days for his tests, then he's just infecting more kids within the school. And then obviously taking that home to the parents and, who are more susceptible to um, to what's going on? So I don't understand how we're nine months in. I live in Westchester County, and we still can't get um, robust uh, available tests. And I feel bad for people around the country where it's probably much worse than what we're experiencing here. 
amen to that. Okay, so let's let's move on to sort of the bundle. We talk about the bundle a lot, and we hate doing earnings reviews. And so, <laughs> so I'm going to self attack myself of like we never do earnings reviews, but there is a common theme that's come out of this quarter. You know, Fubu added the most subscribers in a quarter, and they're a small VMVPD, but they added over a hundred thousand subscribers. We saw you know several hundred thousand subscribers added at YouTube TV, and probably you know we've seen the same thing at Hulu Live. It's sort of fascinating to me that the VMVPDs showed real strength. I mean, cable and satellite lost less than we thought, yep. but the the real surprise was VMVPDs, which had sort of sputtered out, all of a sudden had a surge forward. Now, we could simply say it's all about sports, and people were saw the return of sports, and they wanted the cheapest, quickest way to add sports back, and we may see a lot of churn as we move into January and February. But what I find so interesting, Brandon, is You've been talking about how ratings have been horrible for sports. So yet people sort of incremental subscriptions were better than we thought. And yet ratings fell off a cliff. And it's like, I can't really figure out how well, to they're, process they're those still, two I mean, there were still like fairly large, uh, even though ratings were down significantly year over year, there's still a fairly large aggregation of audience around sports. And I think that the NFL especially was probably the biggest catalyst there. And if you look at NFL ratings, again, they have separating from the pack been a lot better than every, than everyone else's. And just in terms of the gross number um, on viewership, I mean, talking about like 20 million um, viewers a week for, for these games. I mean, it's right. So this could be so many people cut the cord. Still, it's still fairly robust, right? Well, um, so, so, so the takeaway could be people cut the cord over the last year in very big numbers, but they realize they really want to watch football. And so this is a quick and easy way to add football back. And so the question will be, since you can literally click to cancel each of these things, what happens? What does churn look like in, you know, between January and March, it's always been bad. But is it going to be much more severe this year? Because you had a lot of people just come on for football season. Well, this is the reason that the NFL is about to strike gold <laughs> on its on its renewals, right? Yep. Because it's the only thing that matters. I think yeah, so. I mean, look, it, there's passionate fans of a lot of different content that's in the bundle, uh, but you know, on on the margin, sports seems to be losing popularity so we have to just give walt credit because he was out on a limb certainly far more um aggressive with his viewpoint that tiktok would survive and trump would forget or not care so assuming trump lost the election i assume that there's still probably some debate among certain people but if we're going to assume that biden's going to be the next president trump had his opportunity over the last 24 hours to shut down tiktok and the Commerce Department essentially punted. And it looks like TikTok is essentially back to where it was. I mean, they, they're still talking about a potential Oracle deal, but it, it essentially seems like TikTok is going to not just stay, but TikTok is going to grow and build. And I would expect TikTok to get into longer form video and be more aggressive sort of attack on YouTube and other players. I, I think TikTok is going to be a very, very important story for 21 in terms of its impact on the sector, in terms of ad dollars and just growing time spent overall. Yeah, I don't think anything really stopped with it continuing its its um, impact. They were advertising, right? And mainstream yeah, right. media 
um, you know, during this, whether it's for political reasons or not. So the lamestream media, the mainstream. <laughs> that <media>. was. <laughs> Did I say that by accident? You Oops. said the mainstream media. <laughs> oh, whatever. The fake news. Um, yeah. So whatever. It's it's still there. You know, there's a lot of the tweets and stuff today about like, oh my god, like how are they operating under this uncertainty? Like, is it really that big of a deal? Did they? I mean, they they kind of fought it in courts and nothing happened. And um, did it really impact their day-to-day operations in the last couple of weeks? No, but I'm, I'm a, I bet the Triller investors, I bet Ryan Kavanaugh is not so happy right about now. I think they were lobbying pretty hard for TikTok to get shut down so that they could sort of come in and swoop in. And my guess is Please. that venture capital is going to be in a lot of trouble right now. Now, the other, the other app that um, obviously faced a lot of pressure was especially during the last couple of days of the of the election was was Twitter because of all the censoring that they were doing um, from the president and and some of the people um, surrounding the president and a lot of those people um, you know have said that they're gonna get off the platform right um, and, and move to to parlor I guess and isn't that our next slide, Rich? I'm trying to help I can, cue you up here. It, it, I, I can, it I, actually I, wasn't our next slide, oh. I don't think. But but, but I can jump to it. Go, why don't you go you ahead don't? and and bring that? Oh, sorry about and that. And we have it's okay. We so have, last week we had mentioned about Maria Bartiromo of Fox Business, not even Fox um, Regular, um, saying that she was going to leave very soon. Fox whatever, News. whatever you want to call them. Um, that she was going to leave very soon. She's still tweeting. I think she just tweeted an hour ago. So she hasn't left yet as she rage threatened um, last week because of some of her tweets. But now we see what she is. I don't know. What do you call it? If you're doing tweeting on parlor, you're parling, par, par, parling. Do they have a verb for it? I, I don't think there is one yet. Um, so her but- message, I guess, on parlor to her followers that are a million more than what she has on Twitter is massive. You look national- in the if you look in the bo- if you look in the bottom right, Walt. It actually on the latest one it says she has 1.3 million followers. I believe 1.3, which is much more than she had on Twitter. Um, I mean, look, I've questioned TikTok followers, so I don't know how many Russian bots are in the million followers, <laughs> 1.3 million followers that she has. But her her did message you strategically was, say Russia there. Oh, did I say that? Yeah. Um, whatever. Well, you know, the, whatever. Look the at all, all these Freudian slips coming out of Walt today. Sorry. So it says massive national security issues. Massive. I'm told, and this is not me, by the way, this is Maria Bartromo. I'm told dirty Venezuelan and Cuba money behind Dominion. The software also has components from China. This is about to explode. I guess we'll monitor that. I think it's been largely debunked on um, pretty much every other location, but that's what she's posting on Parler um, to her million um 1.2 million, million followers. followers. Is she even relevant? But again, what's oh, interesting it, is what's interesting is just like people were saying, oh, I'm going to leave the country when Trump got elected yeah. and they still remain in the country. These people that are quitting or alledgedly quitting Twitter, they still seem to be tweeting. Well, but but here's why. Okay. I, so I have, a, I have a theory. I have a theory. So hold on. The, the problem with only being on Parler is that all you're doing is entering the echo chamber and informing the people that already like you. But sure. As we know, with any form of politics or yeah, media, but, a whole point about but, it is informing the people that okay. don't like you and irritating them. Like we, everyone wants to irritate the other side if they don't agree with them and try to get them to change their view. If you're only on parlor, you can't do that. And so for Maria, if she left and wasn't there, 
then she's just telling the same people she's not what gaining she, what more. she should do or what she shouldn't do. I'm just look dealing with facts. She said she was going to leave. Right. She's and she's still didn't. here. So right. I will be checking in on this, you know, every every so couple of episodes, not every episode because we want to drive our listeners thing. But she said you were going to leave. All so right. We'll the, say. Let, let me just say a couple of things about Parlor. OK, um, everyone I know and sounds like you guys is, you know, making fun of it, dismissing it for various reasons. Certainly it it is a filter bubble and i think twitter based on our graphs has become a bit of a, of a filter bubble sure. also however the same people who are dismissing parlor are the same people who dismiss trump becoming president in the first place and who have continuously undervalued every trend that is happening outside of new york city san francisco and la and the fact that she was able to accumulate 1.2 million followers there already. I think actually, I don't know if the numbers are accurate, um, but in the quick amount of time that that it's happened, I, I really do actually think that we should take notice of this and take this seriously. Number two app on on the iOS store for free for free Look, apps, and so ha- it's half for half real. the country, you know, is but it thinks one way and a lot of that half of the country is probably apt to to follow um you know their uh, the 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 people that they high, hold in high esteem I'm trying to be euphemistic here um to whatever platform they go to there's no doubt about that. There's going to be multiple platforms, as there well should be. You know, the the world needs competition in multiple areas. But the question, though, well, is talking about competition. Though, are you quitting? Are no, you quitting this is the- this is more like talking about following um, at your your influencers, I guess <laughs> we could call them. Since as we talk about digital media to other platforms, this is the scoop. Um, that came out a couple of uh, days ago, and I'll just read it. It says, Scoop, Trump eyes digital media empire to take on Fox News. And Knocker, not. Yeah, but before that, everyone was like, oh, Trump is going to start his own television network or take over OAN or, or another e- existing network. Uh, digital is the obvious way, obvious way to do this if you want to scale quickly. And there's multiple business models that could be quickly deployed <laughs> to uh, to take advantage of what will probably be immediate scale for, I guess, the current president soon to be expert. Fox News has gotten hit on it pretty hard this week too. I mean, or Fox the stock, I should say, on fear about Fox. I mean, News. look, the, the best asset at Fox is Fox News, because as we say, the value of of a channel in a bundle is the passionate fans that will leave the bundle if if something goes away. So and, odds, odds that Trump and, invests in parlor. I don't know if Trump, I don't know. Investor just goes on the platform. I mean, he'll go on the platform. He'll definitely go on the platform. Why do you think he hasn't? I think he's been a little busy with some other items that he's focused on at the moment. But why isn't he cross posting? That's a good question. 
maybe maybe he realizes that the reach of Twitter is broader at the moment, so he'll wait well, for the platform that, to that, expand. But cross posting, what's the big deal? Yeah, you're you're right. It's just interesting that he hasn't. There's a bunch of people that just haven't yet gone on, and I'm wondering kind of what's stopping them. Is it, you know, what is the underlying fear? Um, there's fear. Maybe it's just they just haven't gotten around to it yet. But again, I would say I do think Trump loves irritating the liberals, right? The Democrats, the liberals. If you go into parlor, you can't do that. Yes, you can cross post. But like the thing he takes most joy in, I truly believe, is like yeah. irritating the people that don't agree with him. Yeah, and every, and pretty much everybody follows Trump. I don't know how many followers he has. Is it eighty something million? Eighty five plus million. Eighty five plus million. And and what's Twitter's domestic? M um, A U D A U. Rich. Thirty million. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Trump is sitting at eighty nine million right now. I think Trump transcends filter bubbles <laughs> because everybody is whether you follow him or not. You're someone in your graph is retweeting him and commenting so right and i okay. also don't think his followers are going to drop as many people have suspected after the presidency ends i think people will he, still continue to follow him because he's going to remain in the mix one way or another i, I oh, couldn't yeah, agree more the the idea that all of a sudden people are going to stop using twitter or stop like that they're you know there's gonna be this news he's, def he's definitely going to continue to to troll sleepy joe <laughs> <laughs> A hundred percent. Okay, let's move on. We've got uh, an FCC tweet, Walt. Um, yeah, so I guess we did get our order out a little bit. This was a follow-on, was supposed to be a follow-on to the whole TikTok thing, which is kind of what's the next prediction, which is this Section 230, and this kind of relates to what Twitter has been doing. I mean, despite Twitter aggressively is probably a good word for you know, marking lots and lots of tweets that the president and his supporters have tweeted out. They, these were things that were triggering people thinking that they should not have the protection of Section 230 for the censorship uh, or whatever word you want to use uh, that they were doing. Part of that was um, the president getting frustrated with Commissioner Mike O'Reilly, basically saying he wasn't going to get appointed to continue bringing this um, uh, Symington as his next nomination. That hearing process um, started this week and, you know, was quickly clear that Simington was going to get put on hold. Um, Blumenthal and a couple others, but primarily Blumenthal said, look, unless you're going to um, pull yourself out or recuse yourself from any Section 230 vote, because because Simington did admit that he had discussions at the White House about Section 230, then He's going to put a hold on his on his nomination. So I think what you're going to see happen at the FCC is Michael Riley will either not vote on stuff or he'll be out by Jan three. I wouldn't expect Chairman Pai to stick around for much longer. So in a normal scenario, what's going to happen is you're going to end up with three FCC commissioners. Probably uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel will take the effective uh, chair interim position. chair interim chair. Uh, and you'll have a two two one vote. Now it's possible, I guess, that Chairman or I guess will be at some point be former Chairman Pai will not want to move into Commissioner Rosenworcel's office um, and just leave the FCC. If he doesn't want to leave the FCC and he wants to just move into Rosenworcel's office at the new headquarters of the FCC, um, I guess you could stick around with a two two and and have nothing get done. But I'm guessing that. Um, that kind of pie steps aside in, in, at the start of the new year. But but what is clear in terms of the point here is that 
Section 230, as I stated a couple of podcasts ago, is going nowhere, <laughs> right? And the Symington <clears throat> confirmation does not seem like it's going to move forward. So you're not going to get any votes during this lame duck session, aside from the fact that Congress has told the FCC to put their pens down and not do anything. That aside, you're just not going to have the votes to get what you need to get done um, in terms of, of Section 230. What's the, you think any impact on, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, as long as it's two to one, it doesn't slow the ability to look at mergers in early 21 to the extent that there are, as long as, as long as it's two to one, if it's two to two, everything just stops. And look, by the time mergers take a lot of time for reviewing yeah, that's that, true. Was, probably by the DOJ, by that time, um, assuming Biden's got his act together and has nominations in place, you know, you'll go through that process and you'll have five commissioners within, you know, some certain number of months. Um, but we'll see how that we'll see how that progresses. Let's stick on. Um, let's talk about 5G, 4G, 5G. Well, we're not really talking about 4G, 5G here, Rich. We're talking about charts that have no Y axis on them. And at this at this week's Verizon meeting, we had basically just a bunch of charts that um, I heard you were salty in that meeting. Finally, got pushback from investors. I mean, I wasn't even in the first one. Dave Barden was the first one to to push back on the chart. <laughs> below. You were so. tweeting. You were tweeting very aggressively, though. It was definitely a very active hour meeting. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and it's just you know when you put charts that have no numbers um, to try and express and, and don't have the data to back them up. Um, you know, there was questions that were had. So these are what charts that we get these days uh, for a long sell side meeting that really didn't generate a lot of new info. What was what we were trying to focus on in the bottom one, which Barden was pointing out, is like how many of these small cells are actually getting built. And you know, years ago, Crown Castle, who's kind of the biggest proponent of small cells, you know, because they have this fiber business. I asked the CEO, I said, well, what's it going to take to get millimeter wave to work? And he said, well, we're going to be putting in hundreds of thousands of small cells per year. I'm like, that'd be great. You can leverage your fiber assets. You know, when do we get this inflection point? So at the Verizon meeting, you know, again, with no numbers at the chart, I'm like, when are you going to get to tens of thousands per month, which would be consistent with hundreds of thousands? Well, no, we're, you know, we're going to get to like a thousand or two or thousands per month. And it just underscores the point of if you're going to use this spectrum that doesn't travel far distances and you're only putting in a couple of thousand per month, how are you ever going to get the coverage that provides you with this really differentiated speed that's supposed to change how the economy works and compete with cable companies and, and what have you? So that was the, the net of all of that. Why don't we look at the gaming space, Brandon? Because there's been, you know, one of the things we found is when I go on YouTube, it's getting harder and harder to upload illegal or not. Sorry, I shouldn't say illegal. It's getting <laughs> it's very a, hard. Yeah, I shouldn't say the word illegal. It's a very on, bad on, way on, to use it. On YouTube, you're talking about. Yeah, so if I go onto it's, YouTube it's, and it's, I try to, I try to upload music in the background for a video that I create. Like if I film myself and I upload, okay. you know, music that is popular, not even popular, just anything that with any like real artist, I'm going to get a takedown notice saying this video can't be uploaded to our system. Please swap out the music because, because of content ID, which was, which was something that took a long time to develop. There was a lot of negotiations between YouTube and the music industry. And now the music industry has turned its attention 
to Twitch and live streaming. So when you're uploading that that video to YouTube, that's obviously a, v, a VOD product, but but live streamers have been using music in the background for their streams for forever. And the music industry really didn't do anything about it until recently. Now, all of a sudden, they they want to get paid. And I understand that they want to get paid on sync rights when, when those files become VOD. I don't necessarily know that they should be getting paid um, for, for live stream. Uh, do, do, do you know, Rich? But the, the solution, there's been kind of a two-pronged solution for Twitch. Um, first, anything that kind of like got DMCA takedown notifications, they passed on to all of the streamers and told them to get it out of their libraries. Um, otherwise, they were getting banned. So, so streamers essentially had to go back and delete a significant portion of the work that they've done over the last several years. And then for going forward, um, Twitch launched the, this soundtrack thing, which which has a, a separate audio um, stream so that so you record the video and the audio separately if you're if you're using music and then that music can be removed when it becomes a VOD file, thus avoiding having to pay sync. I, like honestly, it seems pretty complicated. It feels like Twitch, Amazon should probably just cut deals with with the music labels. I, I guess they've already done some with independence um, with Merlin. But look, Facebook Gaming just did what that huge licensing deal. Um, they got it done. They're deep pocketed. Amazon's deep pocketed. If this is an important part um, of streaming culture, figure something out honestly make it easy i mean youtube makes it so easy where if something gets flagged on an on-demand stream you can swap out for you know you can remove it you can swap in generic music you know kind of like house you know kind of catalog music you know non-royalty free music i should say they got to make it easier i mean that's my guess is this this whole issue that's affected sort of the creator community on youtube is going to play out on gaming and specifically on Twitch. You're going to see a lot of innovation yeah. and by the over way, the course. Twitch isn't just gaming anymore. It just chatting is is a and other categories have become a huge part of Twitch. Right. I, um, but fair. Twitch is continuing to grow. Um, it and is a source of increased engagement. It's up like eighty percent year over year, even last month. And uh, uh, like, what, what what was the, the stat from YouTube Gaming that Ryan tweeted out a couple of weeks ago? They were up a hundred percent, I think, year over year. So similar size in terms of growth. In, in, year over yes, year. in in that in that particular month. Yeah. Okay, Walt. We got uh, big news for important news for Dish. I think so, and important news for probably um, the infrastructure market for five G. Earlier in the week. Dish announced another vendor partner, in this case, Qualcomm. You know, it was kind of a very simplistic release, but there was two very important things. The first one is that Dish's spec, Qualcomm is basically going to use all of Dish's spectrum. Qualcomm is the key component that goes into iPhones as well as infrastructure. So to the extent that there was ever concerns about ecosystem, like years ago, the way it would work is if you had some bought some new piece of spectrum, you'd almost have to like get BlackBerry to commit that I would buy a million BlackBerry units in order to, for you to keep or to put your spectrum 
um, in their product. Now it's a lot easier. You got to get Qualcomm on board. You also have, there also has to be a dialogue with Apple, which I think is occurring between Dish and Apple today to get it in the phones. But that's a that's a key component. The bigger thing here, though, is <clears throat> Qualcomm. It seems like they're getting back in the infrastructure business. They actually, in the very early days of Qualcomm, when they were trying to push CDMA as a technology, right and they were they made phones they made infrastructure they made chips they also sold um, sold IP and they and they sold that infrastructure business to Ericsson and back in 1999 so subsequent to that there's been consolidation and companies like Nortel and Lucent have been basically rolled up into what, what is now effectively um, you know Ericsson Nokia I guess Samsung to a lesser extent and obviously Huawei is the big bad ugly that no one wants to to be able to use so what Qualcomm's now doing is presenting these modules that can enable anyone to become a radio vendor. So this is going to provide new competition for companies that are already struggling in Nokia and Ericsson. But for the buyers, and in this case, Dish, like if I was only using Fujitsu, now maybe Comscope can make me a radio. Airspan can make me a radio. It just opens so up. So pricing goes down? I mean, is that the end it's result? commoditization of the radio layer. Why? Because... They have these products that are just plug and play. They're they're what's known as cloud native. The cloud you just you know basically throw them up, and the cloud actually automatically kind of arranges them. It, it's a it's a huge positive for Dish in terms of broadening the ecosystem and speeding um, the time for deployment. And ultimately, when they get this thing built, what they're going to have is a much more flexible network, which is precisely what enterprise and cloud guys want in terms of 5g it's not this noise about you know the 5g phones that you're hearing hitting the market today having a more flexible market and and creating new applications um, is hopefully the more exciting thing so i think this is a much bigger news amount announcement between qualcomm and dish but also just because how qualcomm could be changing the landscape of the infrastructure market dramatically based on some of these new developments that they've had so dish was up on this news did anyone get hurt on this news I mean, I don't know if people have put two and two together. I think for Dish, it was like um, the brand of Qualcomm and, and you know, knowing that their spectrum was going to be used. But, um, you know, again, on, on the infrastructure side, it's not good news, I think, for, for the likes of a, a Nokia or Ericsson that, that want to try and sell radios into this market. It's not only Dish that's going to... Dish will be the kind of the leader in, in the new architecture. But big companies like Vodafone and even even the the large operators in the U.S. are going to benefit if they can buy workable radios at much lower price from a variety of sources and just plug and play them in, in this new in this new network. It's a game changer. This is not a game changer, but it's certainly a, kind of a continued uh, focus on taking over a category. Spotify acquired Megaphone, a top podcast ad and publishing platform for two hundred and twenty five million. This is important because Spotify has already started to help podcasters make money on their platform. So like if you yep. upload your music, if you're an exclusive podcaster to Spotify, they can swap out the ads or they can do your ads for you and run that business. So if you're a Joe Rogan, uh, as he becomes exclusive over the next month or so, they can sell all of the ads if they want for a podcast that they control. But for most podcasts, Spotify is still a relatively small part of their overall listenership. Most is on Apple. Some is on Overcast. Walt loves um, Castro. Castro. I use Pocket Cast. Everyone uses their favorite app uh, that they like. 
And the advertising is essentially sold by companies like Megaphone. Uh, Art19 actually is who we use for um, for our hosting. Of, uh, we don't do advertising yet, but yeah. for hosting. But, but, but companies like... And, and have an ad network. Correct. And so Megaphone has been a very important player. If you're a, if you're a podcaster all around the world, you use Megaphone as one of your top choices for who you use to sell ads and you know monetize your content. And so Spotify doing this essentially enable Spotify to be far more important to the podcast ecosystem outside of Spotify. And I think that's what's really interesting is can they use their data to actually make the, you know, make podcast advertising work even better outside the walls of Spotify. And the end result there, if they, if they can, that's just going to make podcasters love Spotify and want to put even more effort into their partnership with Spotify going forward. So it feels like this is actually of all of the podcast deals they've done, this actually could be one of the most important. Yeah, that that's that's why you kind of started your comments there, Rich, downplaying this. And to, to me, this is one of the more significant things, if not the most significant thing that Spotify has done this year. I know the hype and what's moved the stock is like a Kim Kardashian deal that probably is barely going to register. And the stock opened down when when they announced this deal. But this is this is a key building block. Spotify is building a vertically integrated stack, so it so there it could there could be a business that's profitable for them and profitable for creators, right? And this is a key component to that to that stack. That's it. They're clearly taking deal. it seriously. It right? is a big deal. Yeah, they're just they're intent. I mean, look, right. there, there's other vertically integrated <laughs> integrated stacks out there that allow for, you know, creation and publishing and monetization distribution. But you look at something like, with all due respect to like Siri Stitcher or iHeart, they aren't necessarily built for the modern digital only world um, a, a, as Spotify is with their stack. So let's talk about more acquisitions in the space. Snapchat acquired a company that I've never heard of called Voca AI. Uh, it, why it's interesting to me is that this is um, all about call centers. So it's basically doing AI-based voice agents. And you'd say, what in the world does Snapchat care about AI voice agents for businesses and call centers? And I think it all wraps into, they made a big change. If you remember a few months ago, they put that bottom ribbon along the bottom of Snapchat. And the first thing on the left-hand side of that was map. And so before map was sort of hidden, like, you know, unless you were sort of in Snapchat culture, you didn't even realize there was a snap map. You had a know to swipe up. Now map is front and center, bottom left of the ribbon. I know from talking to Spotify, like that ribbon at the bottom is so important in terms of driving behavior and especially the left-hand corner. I think this really shows where snap's going. They want business profiles. They want, you know, they, they want major destinations. They want the map to be a very important part of their strategy. And it all ties into building out their relationship with small businesses because Facebook, I think Cheryl announced, um, Brandon, that on this quarter, they're now up to 10 million advertisers. Yep. Obviously, 9.8 million of those are small businesses all around the world. This feels like for Snapchat, they probably have, you know, I don't know, two, 300,000 advertisers. Maybe I'm even high there. To get from a small number of advertisers to tens or millions, let alone 10 million, you need to work with small businesses. And it seems like this is yet another sign that Snapchat is really serious about embracing small business advertising. 
and that that's where the real growth potential is. You know, they're they're still tiny in the scheme of ad dollars. You look out a few years, like this is where the real potential is. I mean, f- Facebook is t- more than twenty times larger than Snapchat's quarterly revenue. So there's a lot of headroom to go if you can break into small businesses. You always used to describe Snap as more of like a brand advertising thing. So doesn't this kind of degrade from that? If all of a sudden I'm going to see my local sandwich shop actually pitching me something on Snap. So Snap was all about brand initially. I mean, I think that's really where they started was big brand deals. And I think what they're realizing. And then it became per, then it became performance. Um, right? What does that mean, performance? So when you see something, like when you go onto Instagram and you see something you want to buy um, or you know that some product that's interesting or some service, oh, the fact gotcha. that you click on it to buy it, so it's a direct response performance ad, Snapchat's realized that that's where the big money is. I mean, if you think about Facebook, out of that twenty billion plus a quarter, ninety plus so percent of that is just say like, okay, I don't want to be on a platform that's going to be pitching performance and sandwiches or whatever. I mean, small business thing. Look, that you think first of all, first of all, brand and performance. I mean, if we're if we're going to get into this, are hopefully sure. going to merge one day, right? So, and are to a certain extent, so that. This is a horrible. I actually just happen to have Ford stock up on Bloomberg right now for whatever reason. But if Ford was trying to sell you an F one fifty, and that it's there's a brand ad that you will be able to actually purchase the vehicle. Let's let's simplify. I think but, Walt's asking a really good important question. Yeah, the reason why Snapchat couldn't do it before is their data sucked. They couldn't target the ad to you. They couldn't give you a relevant ad. If an ad is relevant enough, you won't realize the difference between a brand ad and a performance ad. Like they will, as it gets better and better, putting something in front of you, whether it's a small well, they business also near just, you. They didn't have automated buying before. But the, the, the AI wasn't as good. The algorithm wasn't as good. All of that has gotten a lot better. And it's why you're seeing better, more targeted ads you know, will it ever get down to literally the co- the coffee shop across the street pitching you the way you'll get on Facebook? That's obviously the goal. They're a long way from that. Right now, it's just about to what Brandon said. I think right now it's about getting, you know, one level down in terms of business size to be engaged. And I think the math plays a, a big role in it. But but the point I was trying to make is that it, on on uh, on these platforms, brand advertising and performance advertising and sort of a a hybrid can coexist yeah but 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 let's just and, say and Walt's should, right and should coexist but let's but let's just say Walt's right and all the brand some big brands say you know what i don't want to be here anymore remember that just happened on facebook and they just put up another really good quarter so facebook is not driven by brand advertising the real money in the on, the, on a global basis is not from big brands it's from being able to be reach consumers and drive transactions for small businesses all around the world that's why Snapchat stock's taken off. That's why Pinterest stock has gone up. Like yep. all, you know, that's what, yeah, in many ways, you know, we, we can go to the next slide. Whether, but that's why they're, they're I guess my perception, my, I think my perception is not about brand versus performance. It's, it's, it was focused in on small business versus brand and a Coke ad, a Ford ad, you know, ads like that are very different of a feel than a small business ad of the local guy pitching me on whatever show it is it's just it's a different feel so my point my question then was if this is what they're embracing 
by definition, don't you just bring in lower quality ads that take away from the platform and that the, the brand guys that are spending tons on cool looking ads that actually evoke a emotional response out of people are going to say like, maybe I don't want to be on snaps platform anymore. And who's got more money? money? Ford or the local business? Well, had a coexistence now of, you know, the wishes of, of the world and mm -hmm. some even much seedier um, advertising on snap along with, you know, increasingly big, big brands. So oh, hold on, so but let's just think about TV. But look, look at TV. I mean, think about it. TV for years has been big brands, the biggest brands in the world. And then you see the local car dealership, you know, with the guy, you know, with the cowboy hat saying, come on down to our dealer. We've got a big offer this weekend. Right. Like with that's the local like, avails. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like it's always been a mix of like high quality brand spots combined with I don't want to say lower quality, but certainly less compelling ads from small businesses. Like that's the history of television in, in many ways. But staying on this point, because it's really important, Twitter got killed this quarter for delaying their um, one of their they call it map 2.0. But one of their DR products got pushed out and the street went crazy, negative, upset that they had delayed this as part of their earnings announcement. And one of the things that I think Twitter hasn't done a good job on is that there's a lot more to their performance advertising than just map. And here as an example, yes, I know you're all going to laugh. Twitter yeah, came out announces laugh. <laughs> carousel ads are here. I know it's 2020. Welcome, welcome and to the party. Congrats. The, the, <laughs> the fact that this was a press release um, was amusing to many. Go on. But the, they're copying others. Are they slow? Is ad innovation slow? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But there's a lot of parts to, you know, app installs are already there. Now carousel ads. All of this is tied to performance advertising and direct marketing. They have a much larger user base now. They're putting the tools in place to make it easier for businesses to buy and new products for businesses to buy. That's going to generate really substantial revenue growth next year that the street is not focusing. I mean, if, if they had just printed the ad number this quarter, the revenue number, the stock would have gone up. The reason the stock went down is people were so pissed off about delaying a product and sort of management execution. They got crucified well, the, for it. Look, they have lagged in performance advertising for a very long, a long time compared they to have. the other platforms. They've been surpassed by platforms that came after Twitter. And there's been a loss of, of patience. And yep. yes, they rolled out in the ad format this week. Okay. I think I think they're going to need to show a little more traction before they get the rebuy in from investors, despite having an amazing quarter built on brand advertising. Stock has started to recover, but I agree. It, it definitely they definitely upset people to a point where some people are just sort of disgusted. Well, it's and because maps been pushed back multiple times. Right. 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 The analyst day in February. Hopefully that's you know, we get some more clarity then um, we'll see. Why don't we talk about the gaming space, Brandon? We actually had a, a pretty big deal that finally got finalized at Take Two. Okay, I'll. I guess I'll just read the tweet. Um, Take Two, dollar sign TTWO, and Codemasters have agreed to acquisition terms expected to close next year for nine hundred and ninety-four million. Um, despite the fact that Take Two has a ton of cash. Um, 
has kind of all the publishers are pretty cash rich. Now, um, I believe this is um, a stock deal. Nonetheless, it's both a strategically and financially sound deal. Um, so for those who don't know what Codemasters is, because it's it's a British um, company, um, they make racing games such as F1 and Grid and the Dirt franchises. Everyone thinks of EA as kind of dominating the sports space, but Take-Two is actually right there. We have, They have NBA 2K, Golf, is actually performing really well this year um and and they have the nhl so this kind of solidifies um the the sports portfolio for, for take two and look take two needs more scale among the kind of big three publishers in the u.s um they they have the least scale um which leads to obviously lower so so it's so it's either and and here you're bringing in uh, a publisher who's going to provide additional bulk each year that fits with the portfolio that you have and one that's probably behind in the games as a service model which is someplace that take two has really excelled you've seen that with recurrent revenue um, numbers this year NBA 2K growing massively and on the Rockstar side, best ever years and continued growth uh, for GTA Online. So a real expertise that they can plug in and help Codemasters to monetize. But but just hold on. A good deal kind of all around. But but we're in a huge war for time. Gaming's exploding. Take two's and I mean the stock's done great over you know several years, but it's an eighteen billion dollar company. Why is someone just like why is Take Two making acquisitions? Why is someone just not buying Take Two? Well, who are we talking about buying Take Two? Hey, I don't is know. It, is it, are you talking about horizontal merger where Activision or EA um, would would get together with them because those are kind of the console PC publishers that are of larger scale. Uh, then take two. Or I was thinking Amazon, back, Xbox. Go back to the to, to that conversation, which which is an outsider coming and by and buying one of these publishers. And look, if Amazon or Google's ambitions are to make their cloud based um, gaming services a place that consumers want to be they're going to need content to differentiate and they're going to have to make acquisitions because it's very difficult to build that from scratch and i think microsoft clearly recognizes that even they need more scale uh, for what they're doing which is why they bought bethesda and so yes these the all these companies could could be acquisition targets whether a traditional media company is going to come and want to buy them we've debated that forever doesn't seem like the appetite is there i think that traditional media is is scared of taking on something that that they don't know so Netflix uh, is trying something really interesting in France. Um, they always test things. And so uh, who knows whether this actually has any legs and goes anywhere. But Netflix is introducing, this is a vulture tweet. Netflix is introducing linear channels in France with a f- new feature called Direct. 
essentially what happens is, is just content just plays rather than having to pick, you know, it's basically just stitching together. It's obviously all on-demand content, but they're stitching it together. Really, if you think about it, this was the original, when we first met Tom Ryan at Pluto, Brandon, this was what they were doing with YouTube is they were basically yep. just taking YouTube videos and they were stitching them together into a linear feed about food or about gaming, whatever it may be. You know, at least with Netflix, they're saying that the reason they're doing this test, at least initially in France, is that there's a proclivity in France to just sort of lean back passive viewing. I don't know if that's more true about France and the rest of the world. That's a couple of the articles I read about this saying this was very unique sort of relative to French culture and how they want to watch content. So I have no idea whether this goes anywhere. Uh, we've seen Netflix do a lot of things to sort of increase engagement. My guess is this is a larger scale test to see whether this leads to people spending more time. Uh, obviously, you, you already have Netflix where one episode instantly rolls into another. This is now sort of, you know, content being showed off. Like, so you don't have to go, you don't have to go search for anything to watch. You just turn on Netflix and something's just playing and you start watching it. It, yeah. it sounds a little odd for an on-demand world, but. No, hey, you know, look, Netflix's clear brand identity and focus has been on-demand streaming. That being said, why not experiment? Right. <laughs> if it works, I mean, there are things that that Netflix didn't think were going to work. Uh, hold on, stop there. Walter, what was the one thing they didn't think was going to work and they actually emailed you that you were wrong about and then changed their mind? Who's that? Remember Netflix when they literally emailed you because you were so upset about trailers. 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 And they, they reached out to you and said, we just don't think we need to do trailers. And now, of course, there's trailers. I mean, I remember having the conversation with Reed where I was insisting that offline content. Yes. <laughs> right. Remember that? Oh, that was that was at the that was at the Encore. That was in Vegas. Yep. I remember that. Yep. Um, um, would be popular. And he was like, no, nobody wants that. And guess what? They experimented with it and they they wound up integrating it. They're a good company. They continue to experiment and the things that'll work, they'll integrate into their service. And this is an experimentation that may or may not work. There are a lot of people who like lean back, <laughs> lean back viewing. So we always have a tweet of the week. This week's tweet is by far, I think, one of the best tweets we've had as tweet of the week since we've started this podcast. So I'm going to bring it up because this uh, one is special. A lot of hype. No, this one's special. Brandon, take it away. This is a, this is a celebration of the Xbox and PS5 launches this week, which we didn't mention in this podcast. Both are off to a great start. Massive demand, um, as we've talked about the trends in the gaming space more broadly. And this is from Xbox. We can't believe we have to say this, but please do not blow vape smoke into your Xbox Series X. So for those of you out there who have a brand new Xbox, and I'm sure this goes for PlayStation 5, blow your smoke elsewhere. And I think that's it for this week's podcast. I just want to know who are the people that actually do that and why are they doing uh, it? I just want to understand. It's bizarre. I believe it's because of the way the fan works. And if you put it into one angle of it, it, it makes it look kind of a cool, you know, smoky thing. Like it's a, almost, oh. it makes it look like a fog machine. That was the Got issue it. that was getting, you know. So you're trying to, you're trying to look TikTok cool with your vape. Sure. It's like, you know, it's like getting the, whatever the led lights that, that, you know, that you get for like a gaming machine or whatever. Now they're just blowing smoke through it. 
I'm not sure it really hurt the components that much. So Keep maybe they're just kids. worried. So Walt, Walt says, continue to do it. No problem. Uh, <laughs> that's a wrap on episode 30, everyone. Thank you uh, for listening. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye-bye.